so with an aspiration to make our lives meaningful and beneficial for all beings. Let's get in touch with our compassion that wants sentient beings, ourselves and all others, to be free of all dukkha and the causes of dukkha. And this great compassion that is willing to get involved and be committed to bring that about. And so, if we're going to be involved and committed, then we want to develop our own abilities to the fullest extent so that we can be of the greatest benefit. And so, for that reason, we aim for full enlightenment, a state in which all the defilements such as ignorance, anger, and attachment have been completely removed from the mind and when a state in which all the good qualities love, compassion, wisdom, generosity, benevolence, patience, and so on concentration, all these good qualities have developed to their fullest extent and so that state of Buddhahood or full enlightenment is our goal and the reason we're aiming for it is to be able to enact the greatest benefit for all beings in the long term so generate that aspiration Verses, verse 10 and 11 and 12, are talking about the relationship between compassion and the three jewels of refuge, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So verse 10 uh, is talking first about the Buddha, and it says, When one has completely perfected the ability to meditate on great compassion, one must be perfectly enlightened. Therefore, you are the quality that makes the Buddha a Buddha. Okay. Now, what's interesting about that is great compassion is usually a predecessor to bodhicitta. And bodhicitta is a precursor to the attainment of perfect enlightenment. Okay, so why does this verse say that when one has completed the ability, completely perfected the ability to meditate on great compassion, one must be perfectly enlightened? Okay, if compassion actually comes before great compassion comes before enlightenment. So I think what they're talking about here is there's different stages in our development of great compassion. Yeah. There's one kind of great compassion, as we saw before, that sees suffering beings in their suffering aspect and wishes them to be free of dukkha and its causes. There's another great compassion 
that sees them as uh, qualified by subtle impermanence and wants them to be free. There's another great compassion that sees them as being qualified as by uh, emptiness and wants them to be free. Okay, so there's a difference in how what great compassion is. You know, depending on uh, how you meditate on it and upon how deep your understanding of emptiness is. Okay. Because they say that um, people of kind of a modest aptitude, they will generate uh, great compassion and bodhicitta, in, you know, and then realize emptiness. But people of uh, a high aptitude will gain an understanding of emptiness and that will prompt them to deepen their compassion and generate bodhicitta. So they do it in a slightly reverse order. Okay. So what we're getting at here is that one's understanding of in- emptiness, which is the wisdom side of the path, will influence one's great compassion, which is the method side of the path. Okay, you following me? So the point where our meditation on great compassion is fully perfected is at Buddhahood. Yeah. When, you know, of course our wisdom is fully perfected at that time, but also all the defilements, subtle and gross, have been eliminated from the mind stream. Because if you think about it, okay, great compassion uh, in the mind stream of, let's say, an initial bodhisattva is going to be different than the great compassion in the mind stream of a Buddha. Because that initial bodhisattva, let's say they're just freshly entering the bodhisattva path, they still have all the afflictive obscurations, they still have the cognitive obscurations, so their great compassion, still great compassion, but it's not going to have the, the, the vastness of a Buddha's great compassion because the initial bodhisattva's mind is, is obscured. Okay? And similarly, uh, it, as you go through the, the bodhisattva stages, you gain all sorts of different clairvoyant powers or different, um, not clairvoyant, different supernormal powers. One of those supernormal powers is clairvoyance, another is clairaudience. You can hear things at a great distance. The ability to uh, know sentient beings' karma, know uh, their previous life and then how they're going to die and be reborn. And you have all these different supernormal powers that come to you as you develop concentration and as you purify your mind of various levels of defilement. So if you have those supernormal powers, you're, that's going to affect your uh, great compassion, isn't it? Because your great compassion is going to be able to be so much more robust and vigorous and you can do so much more with great compassion if you have those powers whereas an initial level bodhisattva may not have those powers okay even though they have great compassion 
Okay? So what we're getting at here is by the time, you know, we generate great compassion even before we enter the five bodhisattva paths. But that quality of that great compassion is only going to be completely perfected and developed when we attain full Buddhahood, where we have all the other qualities and abilities of an enlightened one, which will affect uh, how uh, we feel the great compassion and how we act out of great compassion. Okay? So So it says, therefore, you are the quality that makes the Buddha a Buddha because nobody else's great compassion is like a Buddha's great compassion and they say that a Buddha has more compassion for us than we have for ourselves think about that for a while because who do we cherish the most ourselves don't we you know we're our foremost object of compassion and love and care and consideration but a Buddha's compassion and care for us is far greater than our care and compassion for ourselves and the Buddha's not even us you know so I mean that's the depth of that kind of great compassion for sentient beings that it's deeper than the care that sentient beings even have for themselves because we may care for ourselves but sometimes we don't care for ourselves very well do we yeah sometimes we confuse self-indulgence with caring for ourselves and then we wind up in all sorts of trouble Sometimes we think we're caring for ourselves and we're actually going down a path of incredible self-centeredness or self-sabotage. Okay, We all know this, don't we? You know, the discussion group, you're talking about benefiting others. How about just benefiting ourselves, you know? Sometimes we are so confused about how to benefit ourselves. And even though we want happiness, we do the exact opposite thing that you know that creates the cause of misery instead of creating the cause of happiness yeah whereas a Buddhist compassion for us is so intense and it's so supported by an understanding of karma and its effects and supported by an understanding of emptiness that the Buddhist compassion for us is you know going to bring us more benefit than our own small compassion for ourselves so that's why it's talking about great compassion being the quality that makes a Buddha a Buddha because it far surpasses our compassion our, our compassion is kind of partial isn't it yeah it starts out with me and then it proceeds to me and then it goes on to my feelings and my wants and desires and then eventually it gets to the beings who are close to me and the beings who make me happy and the beings who praise me and the beings who give me presents and the beings who agree with my political opinions and the beings who console me and then getting it past that partiality to the people who are nice to us 
that takes some work, doesn't it? Yeah? To get it even to strangers, let alone to people who have harmed us. Although we may think we have compassion for people who have harmed us, because we kind of stick up our nose and say, I feel so sorry for you. You know, like somebody's mean and nasty to us, and we can see their anger and greed. And so we, we just stick up our nose and say, I feel so sorry for you. Actually, we hurt like hell on the inside. But we learn this behavior in grade school. Do you remember in grade school when somebody hurt your feelings? Yeah? How we responded to hurt feelings was, I feel sorry for you. Yeah? And so we think that's compassion. That's not compassion. That's condescension, scorn, you know. (laughs) Not compassion. Uh, But a Buddha is totally free of all that. So we have to be careful when we say, I feel sorry for somebody. Because sometimes it's really a rather not very nice state of mind. Isn't it? Okay, verse 11. All the Buddha's teachings, so this verse is talking about the Dharma. All the Buddha's teachings, which are the nature of nonviolence, are elucidated by means of compassion. Thus you are the quality that makes the Dharma the Dharma. Okay. So, when we're talking about all of the Buddha's teaching, the Buddha's Mahayana teachings, okay, clearly great compassion is involved in them. Okay? Great compassion is just the heart of the Mahayana teachings. But then if we come to the teachings of the hearers and the solitary realizers, those beings who don't aim for full enlightenment but who aim for their own personal liberation, okay? So they have compassion, but they don't have great compassion. They're the ones, remember the first day I was saying compassion is somebody's drowning and you say, rescue them, rescue them, but you don't jump in yourself. There's great compassion, you jump in. So the hearers and the solitary realizers have quite strong compassion, but it's not at the level of commitment of a bodhisattva's compassion. And, you know, the, sometimes the hearers and solitary realizers, they really get a bum deal because they're made out to be, like, totally selfish, you know. So sometimes we Mahayana practitioners, we just have our nose in the air and, you know, we're not selfish like those people who aim for their own personal liberation, you know. Uh, but in actual fact, the arhats have those arhats have much greater compassion than we do. Okay, so we shouldn't get snotty about all this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my grade school vocabulary. Um, <laughs> you know, we we shouldn't get stuck up about you know thinking that that we're more superior because the arhats do have much compassion. Okay, but it isn't the great compassion. And here, you know, our author is praising great compassion. So what's the relationship between, you know, great compassion and the paths of the hearers and the solitary realizers? 
Well, one is that their path was taught by the Buddha due to the Buddha's great compassion. Okay. And another is, as it points out here, that all of the Buddha's teachings, which are the nature of nonviolence, are elucidated by means of compassion. So all the Buddha's teachings, whether they're from the here, the solitary realizer, or the bodhisattva vehicle, are all the nature of compassion because they are all deeply rooted in nonviolence. Okay? So even if you're going to practice the first higher training, the higher training of ethical conduct, a certain element of compassion is necessary to practice that because the, the nature of ethical conduct is non-harmfulness, is non-violence, ahimsa, is the Sanskrit word. Okay? So if we look just even at the ten non-virtues, to abandon the ten non-virtues, we have to have some kind of feeling for non-violence and non-harmfulness, don't we? Yeah, killing, stealing, unwise sexual behavior, lying, creating disharmony with our speech, harsh words, and idle talk, and then coveting, maliciousness, distorted views. To abandon all of those, you know, we need some feeling of benevolence or non-violence in the mind. And that non-violence or benevolence is the nature of compassion. Okay? So even to practice ethical conduct, compassion is involved. And so that's why, you know, the hearers and solitary realizers who really emphasize uh, in terms of the Vinaya, they practice, you know, very often very strict Vinaya, the monks and, and nuns, uh, you know, code of, um, of ethical conduct but you have to have you know an attitude of nonviolence and benevolence to be able to keep your precepts well because without it then you just go about hurting other people okay so that's how com- compassion is the quality that makes the dharma the dharma you know I mean, the real speciality of the Buddhist Dharma, the Buddhist teachings, is this emphasis on nonviolence. Yeah. I mean, it's really very precious, isn't it? Because, yeah. you know, many people, you know, there's, uh, I think there's nonviolence taught in, in all spiritual traditions, but you know, then different religions misunderstand their own teachings, I think. Okay, then verse 12. Here's we're talking about the Sangha. The disciples of our teacher, the conqueror, are defined in terms of whether or not they follow the four duties of a shramana and whether or not they abide by the rules of the discipline of compassion. Hence, you are the quality that makes the Sangha the Sangha. Okay, so the disciple of the disciples of our teacher. So all the disciples, whether they're hearers, solitary realizers, bodhisattvas, okay, they're all defined in terms of whether or not they follow the four duties of a shramana. 
Okay? So, a shramana is a renunciate. Yeah? Uh, so that's why our novice vows are, you know, shramana or shramanerika. Okay? The idea of, of being a renunciate. So there's four qualities, okay, that, that are really important to, to practice. Okay? The first one is not to abuse others even though uh, they abuse you. Second is not to become angry at others even though they are angry at you. Third is not to beat others even though they beat you. They hit you and beat you. And fourth is not to slander or insult others even though they slander and insult you. Easy or difficult? Hard. Hard. Isn't it? Yeah. Really hard. Because we've been taught and also we have the seeds from previous lives that we've been carrying with us of somebody harms us and we retaliate. Yeah? And we feel like we have a right to retaliate. You know, you're mad at me, therefore I can be mad at you. You criticize me behind my back, I can criticize you behind your back. You threw sand in my eyes, I can throw sand in your eyes. You know? We grew up on this, didn't we? That's one of the the techniques for conflict resolution that we learned as children. You know, when we went home crying that somebody hit us or somebody took our ball or something like this, and we were taught, well, hit them back. Yeah? And this is the principle behind the U.S. justice system. You, you kill somebody, well, kill them back. You know, the state kills them, capital punishment. Yeah? So we have this very imbued on us on a social level, but also on an individual level. Okay? Somebody abuses us physically or verbally, we want to get even, don't we? And we feel we have every right to get even. And we even think it's going to benefit the other person by giving them a taste of their own medicine. Yeah. Okay. So that, that thing to retaliate, it's so difficult, isn't it? You know? And somebody is angry at us, do we stay peaceful? We get angry back right away. You don't like me? Well, I don't like you. You're mad at me? I'm mad at you. It's so interesting in our meditation. You know, one thing we really have to question is... You know, because when we get angry, we have all these reasons to justify our anger, don't we? You know, I'm angry because they did this. Okay. It's very easy, to, interesting to have this kind of discussion with ourselves. Uh, you know, okay, to ask ourselves, why are you angry? Well, they did that. Okay, that's true, they did that, but why are you angry? Well, they did this. Oh, that's true, they did this, but why are you angry? Okay. And so we keep on 
you know, acknowledging, okay, they may have said this, they may have done this, they may have thought that. How we know what they thought is beyond me, but, you know, we may think we know what they thought. But to keep asking ourselves, well, okay, that's true, but why am I angry? In other words, yeah, what is it in me that's making me angry at them? They did this and that and the other thing. But does that mean I have to get angry? Does that mean that I have no choice? That I have no control? That I have no responsibility for my own emotions? That when somebody does something, the only possible thing I can feel is anger in response? If we think like that, we're putting ourselves in such a box. Because how are we ever going to have a mind of nonviolence? Because people are always going to be mad at us. And they're always going to harm us. Where are we ever going to go where nobody's going to be mad at us? Come on. You know, we keep looking for the the perfect place where nobody is ever going to be mad at us. Where are we going to find that place? Huh? I remember one time my diversion tell you a story um, I was at a teaching with uh, uh, with Lama Zopa over ten years ago and um, there was a whole circumstance where Rinpoche asked a question and we responded and da 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 and in the break time one nun came up to me and said you know, respond like that, da 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 da. You know, she got really mad about something, you know. So instantly, you know, I mean, I didn't say anything, but inside it was like, wait a minute, you know, I, I said that because I think it was an issue, you know, I voiced an opinion on gender equality or something, and, you know, something important, you know, why are you turning against me? I'm just kind of. You know, so I was really, I was mad. And then, of course, we had to go down, you know, at the bell rang and go back and sit in front of our teacher. And, you know, and we sat next to each other. <laughs> um, and then after that, you know, because Lama Zopa keeps you up until all hours at night, you know. So the little bit of sleep that you can get during a course you really treasure. But when I'm angry, I can't sleep, you know. So I remember walking up to my cabin after that. I was so angry, you know. I think she might have been more angry, but I don't know. But So I was angry, and then I thought... But if I keep on being angry, I can't sleep. And Rinpoche only lets us sleep a little bit, you know. So i got to do something with my anger. And then it really hit me, you know, that where am I ever going to go where nobody's going to be mad at me? You know, where am I ever going to go? Because I didn't expect this person to be mad at me. Yeah, it kind of came out of the blue. And, you know, it only makes me suffer. I can't sleep. And where am I going to go to be free of people like her? 
You know, if I'm sitting with my teacher and I'm not free of people like that, where am I ever going to go to be free of people like that? And anyway, she's not always like that. You know, but it, it really hit me. You know, where am I going to go if I say I can't stand being around people like this? Where am I going to go? Where I can't. Where I'm not going to be. Especially when I take me with me. <laughs> you know, but I'm not one of those persons. <laughs> yeah. So we think. Okay. So you know, really. Pausing and saying, okay, they did this and that, but why do I have to be angry about it? What's my button? No. And so in this situation, I looked and it's like, I don't like people disagreeing with my opinions, especially when I consider it, you know, an important opinion that involves social justice. You know, I don't like people. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know how it is. Many of you are social activists, you know. So when people don't agree with our opinions, oh, you know, how dare these people? There's, you know, yeah. <laughs> dare I say this? It's true. One time when I was living in Seattle, somebody came to me and said, you know, I really love the Buddha's teachings on compassion. But I, there's one group of people I have so much trouble being compassionate for. Can you tell me, how, do, how can I be compassionate to Republicans? <laughs> <Yeah>. So, you know, you know, we all have our own group of people, don't we, that we're biased against. Yeah, might be one or another or something. All the Republicans are going to storm out now. <laughs> yeah, but we all we all have something or another, you know, some social cause that we feel is really right and just. And then people who don't disagree, who don't agree with it, oh, we just think they're nuts. Of course, they think we're nuts. Okay, but where are we ever going to go? Where everybody's going to agree with us? Especially when we change our mind a lot. Okay. Then the third one, not to be because others beat us. Well, you know, this is the thing. You bomb me, I'm going to bomb you. Yeah, this is the American national policy. This is most countries, you know, thing. You attack me, I'm going to attack you back. Okay, and then not to slander others, though slandered by them. So even though people speak badly about us behind our back, it's so difficult not to talk badly about them behind their back, isn't it? Yeah, or somebody's rude to you, somebody's nasty to you. It is so hard, you know, because you just want to get everybody on your side to bolster, you know, we're mad at somebody. We want everybody to be on our side against that person. Yeah, so it's so hard to, um, to, to not seek, you know, to get everybody on our side against somebody else. 
Then there's other times where we, you know, have a problem with anger and we need to talk to somebody else about it to help us calm down. And so at that point we're owning, you know, this is my problem with my anger. I'm not telling you about this situation to turn you against the other person. I'm telling you about it because I need some help with my anger. You know. So that kind of thing is a different situation because then we're really owning what we're feeling. We're trying to do something with our anger. But it is very tempting to trash the other person, isn't it? Yeah. So the, these four things, yeah, these are, when, when we are ordained, we hear about these in our ordination ceremony. These are the four duties of ashramana. And, uh, and also when you hear the bodhisattva vows, they talk about these four as well. Yeah, when you're doing uh, Nune, the ten- retreat on Chenresi, they it comes up. Okay? So these are the four duties of a, a shamana. And that determines whether you're a real disciple of the Buddha. So all of us are kind of trying to become the Buddha's disciples, aren't we? Yeah? Can you talk a little bit about how kind of uh, turning the other cheek in some of those circumstances is not being passive? You know, that there's some strength to compassion in those mm. circumstances. I just okay. Okay, so how when somebody's attacking us or ha- abusing us or out getting us, you know, how does turning the other cheek or how does compassion have strength in it? First, we have to, again, understand what compassion means. Compassion doesn't mean we let the other person walk all over us. Okay? Compassion and patience or fortitude means that we are able to keep our own minds steady and calm, even though people are saying this. So in some situations, people may be trashing us and saying bad things about us. And the best way to handle it is, you know, to be calm in our own mind and just not say anything back. Okay. But there are other situations where somebody is trashing us and harming us where actually we need to be calm But we also need to give that person some information about what the situation actually is. Okay? Actually, there's one of our bodhisattva vows that talks about that. Let me find it. Yeah, it's the the 18th of the uh, 46 auxiliary bodhisattva vows, which is neglecting those who are angry with oneself by not trying to pacify their anger. Pacifying their anger doesn't mean you go slobbering all over yourself and apologizing. I mean, if you've done something wrong, you apologize. But sometimes pacifying somebody's anger means giving them information that they didn't know before. And if they have that information, then the reason why they're so angry is going to evaporate. Because lots of times people get angry because they don't have information or they have wrong information. Right? 
Yeah? So in, in that case, if somebody's really suffering a lot because they're angry, if we have information that we could tell them that would help them, you know, let go and stop being so upset, then it's part of our bodhisattva vows to go to that person and give them that information. Okay? So we really have to understand what compassion means in this circumstance. You know, like I said, some situations it's it's better you just drop it and let it go, and other situations out of compassion you have to respond. Yeah? Um, the, the one about when others beat you mm-hmm. and you're not supposed to beat them back um, I, I mean you have to defend yourself appropriately and protect yourself if mm-hmm. it's going to be a bad situation I would imagine correct but just with the correct mind okay so the one about <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was I was did a prison visit in Ohio uh, in July, no, in August, and uh, and the guys when I was talking about non-retaliation, they said, well, what happens if you're coming out of a commissary and one of these bully type of guys is right there and they want your stuff? Are you going to give it to them? You know, if they if you give it to them, then the next month they're going to be there too, and they're going to keep on taking your stuff. So they oh they got really upset with me. <laughs> Again, I think you have to look at what the situation is. Okay. Sometimes there's you know if some, you might be with somebody who's violent, but there's all sorts of ways to deal with it. Yeah, there's many many ways to deal with violence. Yeah, there is. I really wish I should have written down this story. One woman told me a story about she was in a public place and a man was like beating his wife or girlfriend and she went up and said, Who are you beating her? Why did you pick on somebody your own size? And anybody who knows anything knows domestic violence situations are the most flammable and if you try and intervene you know you could be in big trouble and she just went up and said that and then she ran as fast as she could but the guy did stop yeah so there's there's different ways of dealing with situations you know if somehow there's phys- the only way is physical violence you can disable the person without harming them you know severely there's all sorts of ways of dealing with with situations. Yeah. Do you have any stories? So I spent some time in prison, and uh, there were a few opportunities to be violent in prison, more than one. Um, just as we're sitting here, I'm reflecting kind of 
um, kind of what you're, you, in a situation that gets really, really tense, there's two things you can do, and that's either act, as in act like physically or not act. Um, but both of those things have many different layers. It's like not, usually like in prison especially, not acting is seen as being afraid and um, not wanting to uh, act for fear that you will then be uh, harmed worse or um, yeah, ju- just out of fear. But if you really think about a situation, it's I mean, that's kind of the thing that automatically comes to mind, especially in a place like that. But, I mean, I just picture it, and it's like, there's two ways not to act. And two ways in which you cannot act. There's one where you can be frozen with fear and not act because you don't, you know, you don't know what to do. And the other is because you're just not afraid or because you're overcoming your fear. And so that's, I think people are don't want to act that way because they're afraid to be seen as weak or scared that, that you need to act in order to be strong but uh, actually it's it's far it's I think if I were to witness it it seems there would be far more strength on the side of the person who can stand with strength and not act and uh, I think that was actually the case while I was uh, incarcerated I think you know people automatically think you have to act you have to you know you have to fight but there's so many at the point when a situation starts all the way to the point when it becomes violent there's a million and one opportunities to diffuse the situation and still be considered strong and um, not afraid and I think people I think early on in, the, in a situation that's tense, we, we lose our uh, clear-mindedness and then we start reacting. And then quickly it comes to the point where there's not really anything you can do, any opportunity to step away without looking afraid because you've already pushed, the, you, through your own action, you've already pushed the situation to the point where you can't really um, step away. Mm-hmm. So I don't really know about specific situations, but um, it just seems like to simplify things is pretty much impossible, but the one thing you can always say is there's always a way, almost always a way to get out of a situation and be strong. And, um, you know, there's the situation where someone comes up behind you and, and punches you in the back of the head, and then it's like, what are you going to do there? I don't really know but usually that's not the case Uh, at least in my experience it's it's usually not like that Um, but usually it's it's we react out of fear and we think that the reaction is showing our strength but I I think if you really look at it closer it's it's showing uh, showing fear because if you think of an example if someone's standing in front of uh, two people standing in front of a a poisonous snake or something. You could have one person act and kill the snake, you know, and then you could have another person frozen in fear and, and not do anything. But both people are just as afraid. And you could just as easily have a third person who's standing there and doesn't act and isn't afraid, you know, or, or acts and isn't afraid. But um, usually the, the action is out of fear.
I think very often in, in many situations if somebody's bullying they feed on the fear you know whereas if you're able to stay steady then they can't feed on that fear um, I, I heard very interesting stories these weren't stories of actual violence but there was stories that could have been violent one woman um, was saying that she was walking through um, Central Park, I think, one time, and in the e- at night, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, not smart. And um, she was here. She started hearing somebody follow her, and she started walking more quickly, and the, pa- the steps got more quickly, and there was this guy, you know following her and she had some boxes and things parcels she was carrying and she just turned around and said here can you carry this for me and gave it to him and kept walking and the guy was so stunned that he just followed her carrying the things <laughs> until the edge of the park and then she said thank you very much and took it and <laughs> I thought that was very ingenious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I think I think it's good to try and be creative in situations. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and also be careful. <laughs> yeah. Part of the part of the risk of a violent situation is it's unexpected, right? Mm-hmm. So it does force you to. Um, feel immediately prepared. Mm-hmm. Uh, like your example of um, to immediately think, yes, I'm afraid, but I don't have to act out of fear. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you guys, but that doesn't come immediately. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I think, you know, like, um, you know, I'm practicing here that a mantra could come immediately, but that's not the same thing as this bully behind me, you know, <laughs> and, and it's, it's interesting to, to, to think that, you know, my skillful means at, um, as a practitioner could somehow equate to someone who's likely a lot more familiar with violence than I am. I mean, mm-hmm. if you grow up in a violent household, you know how to escalate very quickly and very skillfully because it's a mm-hmm. you know say your skin reaction that I don't have I mean I don't have that so it's nice to think oh I feel sorry for the guy <laughs> but in reality I'll probably be the next one bloodied on the ground and and then you know that but that's kind of the way I look at that right so. I can say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna learn to, you know, have a mantra on my list. But, you know, great, that could be my, you know, mantra as I go into the next world. <laughs> 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 and that's, I guess you say that's the right response, right? Well, I think you need to look at the situation. But I just know that, you know, 
somebody like me, I'm going to lose whether I fight or not. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd much rather be peaceful. Yeah. Carrie? Yeah, you know, I was just, I've been thinking a lot through this whole thing whether this was written before we had preemptive strike. You know, preemptive strike. Oh, oh, preemptive strike. You know, because I just think that when I think about the the idea of that, it just illustrates me how it all comes from us. Mm -hmm. How that reaction happens even before something else pushes the button. Mm -hmm. You know how you know the the button. I mean, that shows that the button is there, but that but like. I think that even before somebody does something to us, the fact that we, I am already ready to have that person be angry, I am mean, already ready to mm-hmm. respond. I mean, I think that the idea of that response is already there. You just, you just waiting for someone to come around and be angry, or you know, it, it just shows that I don't know. That's yeah, a lot of habit. Yeah, this will be the last comment. I just, I want to make one comment better on that. Is that um, the being mindful in daily life and meditating has gotten me to make tremendous strides in my reaction to when people beat on me. And it happens with a little bit of regularity when I play ice hockey. Um, you know it's it's a great training ground because what happens in a lot of situations is I will be I will be situated somewhere and as Venerable was saying I'll get blindsided hit really hard Mm -hmm. and pain wells up immediately and then anger is, is the next emotion but through meditation and through these teachings, uh, the, the, the amount of anger is way less. Mm-hmm. And the not only is the amount less, but I'm calmer much quicker. Mm-hmm. And so I can tell you firsthand that the Dharma is incredibly powerful in regard to this, in, in regard to this point of being. Mm-hmm. It, it's, if you're mindful and you're aware of what's going to happen, you'll see people coming up to the bottom line most of the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's not my problem. Thank you.